0: This episode of African Tech Conversations is brought to you by FreshBooks, the easy-to-use invoicing software designed to help you get organized, save time invoicing, and get paid faster. If that sounds good to you, click through to gofreshbooks.com forward slash tech conversations to activate a 30-day free trial. Gareth Cliff is not only a controversial South African radio DJ and a judge on DSTV's hugely popular Idol South Africa, but also the co-founder and president of Africa's largest podcast producer, CliffCentral.com. His colorful journey within broadcasting led him to quit one of South Africa's most lucrative radio gigs to launch a platform that now boasts over 40 podcast titles and garners over 140,000 downloads per week. In this conversation, Gareth unpacks the values that motivated his evolution from broadcaster to startup founder, and shares insights on what it's like to be a pathfinder in Africa's untamed new media landscape. This is African Tech Conversations. So I'm at Cliff Central and sitting right behind you, Gareth, is um, a bookshelf with some books on it and... um, I'm curious to know which, if any of those books, could accurately describe your state of mind at present.
1: None of those. I, w- I might go with High Times if it was the weekend, but otherwise, no, nothing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, happily, uh, High Times uh, <laughs> isn't where it's at for now.
1: Yeah, no, no, I, I actually don't. Uh, I don't smoke weed. I just think it's funny, and I, I like people
0: who do. Okay, well, I'm not one of them, so hopefully we'll get along for other reasons. I'm sure we will. Fantastic. Now, there's lots I'd like us to get into in terms of your ongoing evolution as a media personality and the launch of your media platform, Cliff Central. But first, let's talk a little bit about Gareth the Man. Sure. Right. So uh, you spent most of your career working on radio, uh, pretty much offending people on the regular uh, and even getting fired uh, for that reason more than once. And I'm curious to know how much of that is a byproduct of your being yourself and how much of it is intentionally uh, you ruffling feathers for the sake of ratings or, or, you know, how much of that you put down to people just being too sensitive? Um, I think that, you know, long before it became
1: something that people spoke about in hallowed terms, authenticity was something I felt was important. And in radio, I certainly never set out to upset people. I set out in the beginning... I was a bit of an attention seeker, That's that goes without saying. I think as I grew up and as I developed um, a little more confidence on air, it became more about hearing other people's points of view, putting my opinion point of view out there, and starting conversations. And sometimes you only really get a conversation started by being provocative. Um, it's very difficult occasionally to, well, not occasionally, all the time, it's always difficult to get people to uh, engage with something Unless you, you know, kick the, 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 the hornet's nest, uh, they're not going to come out of the nest otherwise, and they're not going to pay any attention to you if you don't. And it's not really about attention seeking for myself anymore. Now it's more about getting those conversations going and and making them positive, um, taking them somewhere where you can actually, by the end of, of, of a discussion, feel like you've gained some new information, that you've improved a point of view. That
0: you've improved an argument, um, that you understand something better, and so how much of this, you know, attention-seeking side of your personality as you were coming up is due to you being an only child or a last born? Or <laughs> no,
1: I'm I'm the eldest of three, um, and I got lots of attention when I was a kid. So I don't think it was a, it was me crying out for love. I think it was more of a question of I at high school discovered I wasn't particularly gifted in terms of athleticism. Um, I wasn't the best-looking guy. I'm still not. Uh, I had to find a way of making a difference and kind of getting girls' attention and all the rest of it. So I did that by being funny. And um, I learned very quickly that I had some ability to do that. And as a result, it becomes a bit like a drug. And you tend to think you're a performer. I discovered after a little bit more introspection that I'm actually more of a communicator
0: than a performer. Interesting. I would have guessed you being either a middle child or a last born. It's interesting. And uh, what are the other Cliff siblings like?
1: Uh, very much cleverer than I am. My brother in the middle of the, two, of the, of the three of us is uh, an investment banker. And my sister, the youngest, is an advocate. So they're both uh, professional, smart, polished, uh, nuanced, uh, successful people so you became the north star of what not to be <laughs> i think i think i just i was so out of left field that it made it easy for them to not have to compete with me in that environment and to do things that really mattered to them um and that they were very talented in
0: in both respects so i'd like you to think back to the very first time you got into trouble for something you said given you you were out to become the class clown i'd imagine that probably happened quite often but try to think back to the very first time that happened
1: Um, it's not difficult because we're writing a book at the moment and I've been, I've actually been going through the archives and and I was fired on campus radio. Um, we did a penis size competition between black and white guys on the campus and it got me fired among other things. There were a whole litany of things that I was doing. I mean, campus radio is meant to be exciting. It's meant to be different. It's meant to be revolutionary um and and i was in the heat of my attention
0: seeking phase at that point but i think it was really interesting radio and so that's very howard sternish is that is that the sort of vibe you were trying to emulate not at
1: that stage i didn't know who howard was but i did subsequently meet him in in 2000 2000 and i was on his show for 30 minutes in new york and he was actually really really nice uh and and gave me some good fatherly advice and you know, he, he, from there on, he certainly became a major influence. Um, and I think he maybe recognized something of himself in me at that point. Um, because I didn't know when I was doing this crazy stuff about Howard Stern. And, and when I later discovered who he was, um, I thought, wow, this guy is the real thing. You know, he's not afraid to say anything. He's not afraid to embarrass himself. He's not afraid to, um, to not be cool, which is precisely where he's always been and he's in his 60s now and he's still on air and he's still the most successful radio broadcaster in history
0: and so you say he was actually quite a nice person do you get that with yourself given given the the persona we've all come to know on radio that people actually meet you and go "Oh, he was actually quite nice yeah and i never know i never know whether it's an insult or a compliment
1: because it means that they really thought you were an asshole beforehand or that they are surprised that you're not. <laughs> so either way, it's not particularly nice. I, I think that they mean it in a good way. But um, I'm always quick to point out that it's a, it's a you know two, two, two-faced compliment.
0: Yeah, and so where was this campus? Where, where did
1: you go to Vasti? I was at the University of Pretoria. I studied law for four years, didn't finish, and then went on to do international politics and history. And while I was studying international politics, September 11 happened and
0: everything changed so it was as if the syllabus itself had become completely irrelevant you're probably asking for trouble if people who don't who are not familiar with the university scene in south africa i mean university of pretoria is arguably one of the the more conservative campuses if you know you know if i were to thumb one of the more conservative sort of archetypal settings i'd imagine university of pretoria but no gareth had to go and measure people's
1: Um. (laughs) it wasn't conservative you know all of my classes were in English. Everybody thinks it's a totally Afrikaans university, and that was back in nineteen ninety six, seven, eight, nine. Um, all my classes in English. We had Sasco protesting on on campus uh, regularly. I joined all the political parties just to fuck with them. I got t-shirts from all of them, and then I'd wear the different t-shirts, and they'd say to me, "Hey, but you joined us," and I'd say, "Yeah, well, you." you political parties are morons i mean no one has to be loyal to you why should we what do you do for us you need us more than we need you and um there was quite a lot of political activism and i remember at university i was quite i was i was quite politically engaged without ever being a member of anything in particular or or standing for office or standing for election so i think the university of pretoria it, it it always has had this reputation of being a conservative institutional place um but when you're actually there it doesn't feel like that at all and it's the best kept secret as a result so there's outwardly none of the uh you know the, this this bubbling over of revolutionary spirit but inside it's definitely
0: feeling it so you're a white guy and um being uh politically active even if even on sort of in a more subtle very cerebral mode as you've just described In South Africa, highly racialized society um, at that time of, you know, at the time you came up.
1: Always. Always. Are we ever not, you know, racially motivated and obsessed society? We are. We can't help it.
0: It's it's in our genes. Uh, What sort of perspective do you think as a white dude being involved in that scene? What sort of perspective do you have perhaps that someone in your class, sitting for your, you know, when you were sitting for your law degree and all the rest of that, uh, a, a black guy, you're in, in in exactly the same position, a perspective that perhaps they would never get because their, their their background is so different.
1: Oh, look, first of all, I thought this was a tech podcast, but there's so much to talk about here and I, I, I love getting into this stuff, but, but it does require um, a determination to find solutions which are not always obvious. And we tend to look for quick answers and reflex reactions when it comes to things like, like race in South Africa. We don't dig deep enough. There's a lot about whiteness that we still need to explore. There's a lot about privilege that we need to talk about. There's a lot about black anger we need to address. There's a lot about inequality. But I think one of the things that I, I realized early on is that the, the greatest damage that the old regime did to South Africa was to, to families um the the the, it was father's day a couple of days ago and fathers among young black people in this country are a rare commodity they're rarer than gold and diamonds Uh, good fathers fathers who care fathers who are involved fathers who even are present in their children's lives and i realized early on that it was the the greatest privilege i have as as a as a young white guy in south africa is probably that i had my dad around I mean, look, he did go to the army and he had to fight in the border wars for that stupid government. And I think my mother was quite bitter about that for a time. Um, and, and I didn't have my dad around when I was very little because of that the whole time. But that's nothing compared to what you know young black men who who needed a role model perhaps in their youth didn't get because their father was working in another province in a mine or was migrant, labor somewhere in 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 a part of south africa that that child didn't even know existed and i think that that is where the greatest gulf between black people and white people at university with me was and and that gulf hasn't completely been um, crossed yet i don't think that we've come to terms with it it's something that a lot of black people are very uncomfortable talking about because it's it's home you know and it's a thing that white people don't understand and maybe they don't want to because it makes them uncomfortable too. They have to confront the fact that something so fundamental was present for them and absent for someone else.
0: You know, interesting you point out that this is a tech podcast. You know, the gap I found or I identified and what uh, drove me to start this podcast was... The, the idea that we know so much about the ecosystem across the water. We know when Mark Cuban decided to leave varsity or dropped, started a paper route. We know when Bill Gates dropped out of Harvard. We know who's vegan. And we, we know very little about our own ecosystem. And what's interesting is that um, the vast majority of the people who, who are part of the series African Tech Conversations so far have been white, white males for that matter. And it, it's occurred to me many times that there, there are easy answers to why that is. And then they're more difficult ones, more nuanced ones, pointing more to some of the things you've already said, you know. And and I have a sense that unless we start to address them or talk about them, um, you know, we can sort of pay lip service to how we need more women in tech and how we need more black kids taking science and maths and that kind of thing. Or we can start to ask more difficult questions about the the structural issues behind what brought some of, you know, people we've come to admire to where they are, you know, and that's really the, you know, the motivation behind the questions. That is is absolutely right. I also think that
1: we've got a little bit of an unhealthy obsession with demographics at the moment, demography. I think that we are, and and it's right for us to be aware of this because it should be that if 80% of the population is black and if more than half of the people in South Africa are women, that there should be more black women in every sector. And obviously there are not. But I think we've become obsessed with the cosmetic effect of let's rather have black women who are not necessarily exemplary, but have them there um, rather than have exemplary people who may be, you know, black or white men um, who are already doing amazing things. But we'll just put them to the side and let's try and focus on this one stellar black woman. Um, I think that we've got to be careful. We've got to balance that up because business and money don't care about demographics and they don't care about race and they don't care about any of that stuff and if we want to compete internationally and i think this is important we need to have great ideas and great ideas can come from anybody in fact adversity and a lack of resources sometimes spurs on the very best of innovations so i think that there is an opportunity here for young black women and young black men to stand up and to come up with ideas that solve problems in africa and in South Africa, and in their community, wherever that may be, wherever, if, if, they're, if they're urban or they're rural, there are things that we can solve here, which are the keys to new tech businesses, um, which only black people can solve, which opens up a huge realm of possibilities, which we're not exploring. We're looking for the obvious things: social media um, uh, um, apps. apps apps I mean apps, uh, delivery businesses, there are all kinds of obvious things that have already been done. We need people who can solve problems like a, a friend of mine, Sapo Makwazima, has just done a, he's just come up with a, with a brilliant concept. Well, not come up with, he's been working on it for some time. Uh, you get airtime if you watch an ad. So it's called Umoye Um You download his app, you, you can make a free call, but in order to make that free call, you need to watch an, uh, an ad. And clients will pay to be a part of that, so they pay for the airtime for you. And it's better than a please call me because you don't need to send the please call me. You can just make the call, sit through a minute long ad and you've got your your airtime. Now to me he's solving problems because people who don't have, let's say you do pay pay as you go uh, cell phone, you don't, you run out of airtime and you're stuck at the station or you're stuck at work or you're stuck at home or whatever. You need to get around, you need to make a call this is the way to solve the problem. To me, Sapo is going to be one of those people who solves problems. Sapo will end up very rich and he will not be the exception. He'll be the, the rule. And he'll just happen to be black. That's the point. And I mean, I, I hate it when people go, and he happens to be black because, you know, it's usually an excuse. It is. But I feel in, in, in tech, you know, the, the, the technology doesn't care. The market doesn't care. And if you want to grow really big, On this continent, the rest of Africa doesn't care about our politics either. They're interested in great ideas, and they're interested in things that solve their problems. If we can come up with those two things, and we can put them into business models that work, there's no reason why everyone can't get rich. I believe they call this pragmatism? Yeah, and pragmatism is more important than idealism. Idealism's got us nowhere. Um, If you see what's going on in the news at the moment with these, these insane, internecine political rivalries in Pretoria among ANC candidates, to me, that is ideology gone mad. And it's actually just greed. Because these people don't have anything but an ideology, these these political candidates. Um, so they're jo- jockeying for a position on a list because they don't have any other way to feed their families or to get ahead. Now, that's insane. We should never have to rely on something as silly as that. It's not, It's not sustainable. And why should the public purse have to fund people like that having their battles i don't see why i think that there are ways for us to make ourselves more useful than that and if you can't be more useful than that then maybe you're just not useful ouch (laughs) yeah i mean let's let's stop with the bullshit for heaven's sake we're looking for solutions here we've got a
0: municipality
1: in our capital city that's bankrupt and we've got people squabbling over the crumbs that fall
0: from the table well then, let's fast forward to a time when, um, obviously, now picking up from you know where we actually took a detour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you did this. Oh, okay, I'll take it. So let's fast forward from the last ti- you know, the first time you got into trouble for something you said, to something more more recent. Um, I mean, you you made the headlines more recently um, <clears throat> in a spat you had with um, the folks over at uh, DSTV um look i don't even i'm not even asking you to speak about that specifically but is there is there anything perhaps perhaps that would be the the thing but is there anything you've ever said and got in trouble for that you you wish you could take back or should or feel you shouldn't have said plenty don't you i mean yeah mostly yeah i do mostly pre-twitter thank goodness
1: yeah you see this is the point too is that now everything you say and do is there for permanent public record in perpetuity so it means your mistakes are immortal which is terrible because there used to be a time where you'd, your mistakes would be forgotten. Look, egregious mistakes, murdering someone, that shouldn't be forgotten. But if you say something, um, particularly if it's something that is offensive only to a group of people, let's say there's 15 people on a university campus who are upset by something, you shouldn't have to be you know, the guy who said that for the rest of your life. And And, and that can really impact very negatively on young people who are going into uh the, the the marketplace for the first time looking for a job or something and they said something revolutionary or radical on twitter once and and now no employer will touch them because you know
0: they support the eff for example i mean that that should never be held against you right so in, in your more recent uh the, the spat i just referenced um you said something on your show i believe uh that affected w- what well would later on go into affect your 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 current deal with uh, with DSTV, and they felt that was out of, how did that work? Okay, it all started with the uh, Penny Sparrow, who was the who was the white
1: woman who ignorantly and 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 hatefully said that black people were monkeys and that they were fouling up her beach as if it belonged to her. Um, we went on air on the Monday morning. It was the first week of January. My first day back at work. And we, we we took it to pieces. We said, you know, this is the kind of thing that's taking us backwards. This is not helpful. Um, this woman is, is clearly, um, you know, she's a bigot. There's no other way to put it. And And racism and all the rest of it came into it. And we were discussing the reaction of people to her and everything else. But it was a very sensible, sane conversation. Anyway, that's what I do on my show. And we always respond to what Whatever's happening in the news I tweeted later on in the day Because someone had put up a poll That said should we criminalize Certain kinds of speech In other words Is it okay for us to give up Freedom of speech In certain areas So that those people Who say things in those areas Should be locked in jail Or sanctioned Or fined Or whatever else In other words That your thoughts That your words Are enough to get you Into into criminal trouble And I think no And the poll came out with a resounding 75 percent of people saying yes certain words thoughts should be criminal now if you are a free speech absolutist like i am then that's just not cool so i said in a tweet and these are the seven words that got me into trouble people really don't understand freedom of speech that's it that's what they fired me over so Mnet called a meeting, they said, oh, we've got to do something, because it looked like I was supporting Penny Sparrow, which I clearly wasn't. I don't care about Penny Sparrow. I, I'm not interested in her. I don't think she should have as much effect on the public discourse as she has had. And I don't believe that what she said was right. But I also don't believe that you should ever tell someone that they shouldn't be able to say something. doesn't mean they're going to stop thinking It doesn't mean you're going to destroy the bad idea. In order to destroy a bad idea, you need to bring it out into the open and criticize it and ridicule it and ridicule the person who says it so that they never do it again and they think about it twice. And that's what's happened to her but not because she couldn't say it because she could. So the people who were saying we should stand against freedom of speech are counterintuitive to their own position. In order to fight with someone like Penny Sparrow she has to say what she's in in her backward mammalian brain is thinking and if she hadn't said it we wouldn't be able to attack her. Now Having said all of that, I got into trouble with Mnet. They decided they're going to take me off of idols. Dalian Pofu, who's a friend of mine, said, screw that, we're going to take them to court. I said to him, oh, I'm not very litigious. He said, look, you've got to stand up for yourself here. Otherwise, you'll be branded a racist along with Penny Sparrow. And you've done nothing wrong. So I said to him, fine, let's do it. It became a massive sensation in the news. We ended up going to court. We ended up winning. Um, Mnet had to reinstate me in the show which they've done. We've already recorded most of, of Idol season 12 and we're going into the live shows in August. That's the short story.
0: And so as a metaphor for the changing relationship between uh, media brands, individual media brands and incumbent large organizations like Mnet, as a metaphor, what you've just described, what what do you think it says about the future we should expect? Well, it's David versus Goliath, isn't it?
1: I mean, I'm here with a, a little startup that we began two years ago, and we're we're doing okay, we're, com- we're coming along. I mean, I'd obviously like things to be going a lot faster than they are, but it's coming along very nicely, 100,000 podcast downloads a week, and an audience that's growing. And we're the future, and they represent the past, and they have huge resources, huge money. They had a legal team of 14 lawyers, three counsel, and they still lost. So there is room for even the most simple person in in, in South Africa to stand up for themselves and to take on companies that you would have thought would be indefatigable. And here we are proving a point. I'm very proud of what we did. It was tough as hell, I won't lie. I I hated every moment of it when we were going through the process. I very often thought of giving up. Um, I knew if we lost, it would sink me completely that I would have I would have gone down in flames.
0: And what's your take on Twitter as a platform? Let's take Twitter specifically, because I think it's become really the way many people in the world now curate their news and decide what's important to know. Uh what what are you what are your thoughts now, given this experience that you've gone through, about the importance of Twitter? Bearing in mind that the countries like Ghana that are toying with perhaps shutting it off for the elections later this year. Uh, uh, talk to me about the power, both the power and maybe the possible trepidation you might approach that platform with or others.
1: Um, Twitter is a terrific tool, um, as as all social media are. Um, I think that it's, it started off great because everybody went on, you follow the people you're interested in following. What you don't have the right to do is tell everybody who you don't like or who you're not following what to say on Twitter. This is the funny thing about freedom of speech is everybody wants it for themselves. But when someone says something they don't like, they don't want freedom of speech for that person. Um, ISIS have a Twitter account, for God's sake. Now, to me, that's egregious and offensive in the extreme. These are people who are actively recruiting terrorists to do harm to people like you and me, who just don't believe the same things they believe. And yet they're allowed to exist on this platform. And I think that's right. I think that Penny Sparrow and her like... Should also be on Twitter and on Facebook, and they should allow they should be allowed to Steve Hofmeier can say whatever he wants. go for it the moment we try to shut that kind of speech down, or we do what they call doxing or the social justice warriors who've appointed themselves you know a band of nothing less than mob uh ruled kangaroo court set up mentalities get together and decide well what Andyele says is not acceptable, what Garrett says is not acceptable, so we'll will pester and bully and torment them on twitter until they change their mind well they're not going to change their mind they're just going to go quiet they'll still disagree with you and think you're an idiot but they're just going to go quiet because they don't need the stress and the admin of you and the point is that twitter has become in its democratisation it used to be a place where people would have interesting conversations even fights uh people would disagree with each other they would they would share info they would dispel bad ideas. It was a great place for people to have conversations. Unfortunately, what's happened is a bunch of very intolerant people have come into Twitter and have started to think they must dictate, like a state, rules for everyone else. And this is not the way that social media works. I can't tell ISIS that they must, you know, they must immediately cease and desist. So Hillary Clinton can't tell Donald Trump to delete his account. She can try, but why should he listen to her? Because on Twitter, everyone is equal. And this is important. Your opinion counts as much as mine. It's not about how many followers I have or how many followers you have. We should all treat each other with respect on there. You're allowed to disagree, but you're not allowed to shut someone down. Because that is the antithesis of freedom of speech. So calling someone a racist or a bigot or a misogynist or any of those things is the beginning of a conversation. It isn't the point at which that person's argument becomes invalid. I, I don't think I'm having nearly as much fun on Twitter anymore as I used to. In fact, you'll see very, v- with a very quick look at what I've been tweeting, I don't tweet any opinions anymore. It's a cesspit of vipers. There's no real... Con- you go on there on a Sunday night, and you, l- you see this bitterness about people on Our Perfect Wedding or Date My Family, and you see such mean, nasty vicious bitter angry people and you think this is a show about a wet there's a happy couple on tv and on twitter there's
0: just miserable people i don't want to be a part of that i'm out i think on some level there's a laziness uh or we were all perhaps too willing uh and i say we as uh, i'm not south african but certainly uh south african society to buy into this notion that um we could we could paint a picture of what things should look like and it would suddenly be true. Mm-hmm. And I think the more we realize how challenging it is to actually live the, you know, the truth we'd like to see or be, be true, the harder, the, 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 the more exposed we are to the difficulty of actually getting along and progressing together and learning about each other. And I mean, genuinely understanding each other, genuinely making the time to, but once we discovered how hard that was, um, we all sort of rebelled and took sides and tried to take everyone else out. Well, it's, you know, you
1: can only get so much intelligent thought into 140 characters. And for most people, that already is explosive to their brain. So you can't expect to have proper intellectual conversations on a platform like Twitter. You can certainly be funny, you can be cheeky, you can be sarcastic, but people can't read tone into those things. So in 140 characters in writing, you can't really tell what people are saying,
0: and so you're lucky. You still have your show. You've got three hours a day to sort of, get, you know, articulate your position on most things. What would you say? What would you say is available to the average citizen who doesn't have a mic? Listen, I'm not lucky. I started this platform myself. I've
1: created a platform for a whole lot of other people. We've got more than forty shows on here at the moment. I'm not lucky. I did this because this is what I want to do. This is where I want to take. The media business, this is where I want to take my own business, this is where I want to take my brand and grow other people's brands. So, anyone can do what we're doing. So, don't sit on Twitter feeling sorry for yourself. If you think you've got something to say and other people might actually be interested in it, if you are intelligent or you're funny or you're inspiring or you're empowering or you're an authority on something, then bring it.
0: Let's just also, I suppose, let's also remind people that there are plenty of other platforms i think twitter really should should be part of a a broader camp a a broader strategy you have to express yourself i I don't think twitter should be an end in you know an end unto unto itself and perhaps you should be blogging and or vlogging and doing also some of the things to make sure that your position is adequately communicated
1: but i don't think a lot of the people on twitter have that much to say actually ouch Yeah, no, it's like that open the industry thing that happened a while ago where everybody was complaining about, oh, Dume Shomasha gets all the roles. Well, because he's good. And because you live in your parents' basement and you don't actually have any acting talent. That's why Dume Shomasha has the role. Don't for a minute think that if he wasn't on TV, you'd get the role. We haven't dropped our standards that low yet. And you don't actually have that much to say. 140 characters is more than enough for some people. In fact, for some, it's too much. A
0: smiley, an emoticon, should be enough for some people. (laughs) A kimoji, maybe. Okay, so listen, you—you spoke about you being the judge on Idols. Um, You host your own breakfast show. We've we've touched on that. Um, But, you you know, that's a complex role because you're also the boss to many media makers. You said 40. I didn't realize it was that many. 40 shows. shows, uh,
1: We've got over 100 different presenters on here. Some of our shows are podcast only some of them are, are, are live and pod, all of our stuff is
0: podcast but some of it is broadcast live and so what would you in one word say you know would describe exactly what you do uh, overall in terms of you know everything you do put together
1: we're a, we're a content hub we produce um, audio and video content um, of every kind entertaining informative
0: uh, inspiring empowering right so i have this theory about the broadcasting industry in south africa which perhaps might hold um, uh, in other African markets as well, I'd say there are about ten to fifteen media personalities who have built excellent business models around their talent and influence in the traditional broadcasting industry. I, I think of people like DJ Fresh, Unatim Sengana, Robert Marawa, Tladi, maybe Clady, maybe Touch, maybe John Robbie. You know, I you know, and I believe that like for these people, the traditional broadcasting business, even though it's changing. Uh, delivers such value that they don't really need to throw themselves into creating platforms that you know might compete with the big majors you know you'd make that list certainly top five for me you know you know while you were still at five FM, you you definitely still make that list I, I suppose my question given that theory is why would you feel the need to leave that cushy position because i i don't feel like you needed to in, in order to sustain the brand or to to grow what you were doing or did you well let me start by saying I got out
1: at exactly the right time at the SABC because at the moment I don't think you can you can have integrity and work there. And that's quite a statement. Y- you you c- I could not sit there and do a morning show knowing that my audience are as clever as I am or cleverer and ignore what's happening in Zwane. And yet you've got you know radio DJs at the SABC tweeting things about sleeping patterns and the latest Nicki Minaj music video, uh, it's just insulting. There's no way you could, you could I could, I'm not going to speak for everybody, there's no uh, way I could do that in good conscience. As the state broadcaster, as the public broadcaster, there's a, there's a responsibility to at least treat your audience with the same respect that you'd want to be treated. You don't talk to them like children. And if I were working under Laudi Mutsuenei right now, I would my head would be uh, exploding. There's no way I could do that. So first of all, I made the decision long before any of this had happened. And for my own reasons, I decided it was time to get out. Because sitting in a cushy job is for some people just not good enough. You're not going to change the world in a cushy job, even if you are influential, even if you have 6 million listeners. The way to change the world is to build something that other people can
0: benefit from. We're taking a quick break to remind you of FreshBooks' pretty awesome offer to you, a listener of the African Tech Conversations podcast. They're offering a 30-day free trial to give you the opportunity to try out their service. Now, if you'd like to get organized, save time invoicing, and get paid faster, click through to gofreshbooks.com forward slash techconversations and put their software to the test. Discussing the fact that I'd be speaking to you with a friend of mine to me, so he's sort of a brand architect type and... And he reckons that, from a branding perspective, a business perspective, your your sort of ideals and beliefs, you know, your values aside, from a branding perspective, leaving the mainstream was the national, you know, the natural next step for, you know, this bad boy non-conformist media brand. Do you think he's right? Well, that that that's obviously how I'm perceived by people who
1: listen to me for years. Um, there are a few things, not a lot, but a few things that people don't know about me. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm quite into making a difference. Actually, I'm, I'm not so much into just making a noise. And I, I felt that when we started this, there was an opportunity here for me to create an, a, a platform for other people, who are talented, and for other people who want to listen to different stuff that isn't out there already, that isn't patronizing, and, that sounds the same as everything else. There's plenty for, you know, if you're a pedestrian listener, there's the world of of, of mundane, average, dumb, done-and-dusted radio for, for you to listen to. Uh, if you wanted something like Frankly Speaking with Rory Sang Chabalala and Andrew Levy, you're not going to get that on radio because people can't talk that frankly here. I mean, on, on radio, they can here. Um, if you want to hear Casper de Vries or Trevor Gumbi, doing their thing uncensored with all the swear words and all the foul jokes and everything else that they could never do on radio, they'd be fired straight away, then that's for you here. If you want to hear intelligent conversations with real experts, if you want to hear about science or sex or animals or business, and you want to be treated as an equal by the presenter, then this is what you've got to listen to. That idea of someone else choosing what you should be listening to And making a traffic joke at a certain time. Or, you know, doing a prank call. That was already boring in 1989. How it can still be going now just shows you that maybe South Africa, the the largest proportion of South Africa, black and white, is quite content to watch Leon Schuster until he's dead and we're in our 90s. And if that is all you want, then this is not for you. But if you want more, if you think that we deserve better, if
0: you think you deserve better,
1: then what we're building here is what you're going to get.
0: And at inception, did you and the team at Cliff Central think of yourselves as being a startup in the traditional Silicon Valley sense? Uh, I mean, from what I can tell, the plan seems to be, you know, the, the plan seems to be keep it lean, um, scale fast. Is that the sort of mindset that was driving you guys? Absolutely. Um
1: I knew this was going to be a tech business because I realized that the internet presented the, the, the greatest opportunity for us to do something where we were unregulated. We didn't need to apply for a license to do it. We, we're infinitely scalable because we can have a thousand podcasts being produced today in every con- uh, corner of Africa. I mean, I, I foresee us having offices in Nigeria and in Kenya and everywhere else. Um, and, and producing niched content for communities that if they're 500 people strong those 500 people want that kind of content you're not wasting a
0: moment of their time and
1: they're coming for for exactly what they want
0: and they're getting it and so let's talk about the team that turned gareth cliff you know the brand from a lippy radio jock to the walking brand he is today and then from that to essentially a a, a businessman really a startup founder Uh, many people in the industry consider one of the smartest moves you ever made landing your Landing your business partner, Rena, Rena Bloomberg, and um, how did you guys meet? And how how did you go about surrounding yourself with the kind of people that would execute on an idea you had,
1: or was it just all you? <laughs> no, no, it's not all me. It's never, it's never ever just one person. And anyone who who says it was all me is full of shit. Um, the whole story will be in the book that we'll release later this year. But I, I met Rena when she had uh, she was not in radio at all. Um, she had been a part of the the beginning of 702, a very important part of that. She was managing director there for a long time. She, John Burke, Stan Katz, Izzy Kirsch were the people who brought to talk radio to South Africa. So she's got an unbelievable depth of experience. She's also very different to me, which is part of why it works. You know, what she's interested in, the kinds of things she's really good at are things that I'm not. And the kinds of things I'm really good at are things that she's not. So we make a good team. Um, when I met her, she was consulting to a big ad agency. And we clicked. I think she saw potential. That's what she said. I see some potential. That's also still to date the highest compliment she's ever paid me. I was
0: going to say, isn't that a tad condescending?
1: It, yes. And, and it's still the best compliment she's ever given me. So that tells you something about Rena. Um, She She's really smart. She's she's beyond smart she's wise Um, she's seen a lot come and go and i think she has a good handle on people which is an incredible skill to have that combined with an eye on the future which both of us have always had and the fact that we're interested
0: in making a difference in this country and so what do you bring to the table as a team like what do you bring to the table what does rena bring to the table operationally
1: well i think that we we both have very different skill sets i mean you know rena's had experience in in managing people, um, which I haven't. Um I'm I'm not a team player, so this is new territory to me. Um I, I'm the guy who, who knows how to make it sound and work right. And I also know a thing or two about the market and I know a thing or two about tech. Um I also am driven beyond belief to make this a success. Whereas, you know, Rena to some degree has already had her success in her life. She's built plenty of things already. So she's sort of helping me build mine. Um, it's a combination. It's a combination of factors. It's also a combination of, of other personalities here. We've got a great team of people, um, some very very talented young people, who are not only learning while they while they work, but teaching us things at the same time.
0: And so, what's the the business model of Eclipse Central? How
1: do you make money? We make money off advertising and sponsorship primarily. I mean, there are other ways for us to make income too, but those are those are not as as important. And essentially, we will create branded content for clients, which will be part of the story, which will be part of the podcast, which will be part of the content that we deliver to the audience. And it's going to be very straightforward, and it's going to be very upfront, and it's going to be very real. So the audience know what they're in for. But that gets them the content for free.
0: So is this um, is this a native play or is it like literal ads that are like? No,
1: it's native. It's totally native, and it's 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 woven in, and it has to be authentic, which is our our whole kind of brand promise: is that we're an authentic content creator, and we're an authentic branded content deliverer.
0: Okay, so you know, my question is: why follow the linear radio model? Why not completely? Why don't go completely on demand? Well, we are. I, I don't know what you mean. D- don't your shows record in real time? If
1: you listen to the the, the the stream, the live stream every day between 6 and 6, you will hear the shows being recorded.
0: Oh, I see. So that's really just uh, uh, a by the by. It's
1: it's like if you are a big fan of, you know, a Late Night with uh, Jimmy Fallon and you watch it on TV every night. But one year you get a ticket to New York and you go and watch it live in studio. That's how it is
0: in fact it's pretty much it's pretty much like um what chelsea's doing on netflix how i mean you can you can tune in and watch it live happening or actually tune in for the live broadcast or you, can, or you can watch it when you're ready i mean people it is on demand and
1: this is what the beauty of podcasting is is that you can listen whenever you want you can pause it go into the shops you know uh you can go to gym and listen to it while you're on the treadmill you can switch it off when someone calls you you can come back to it later but it you'll listen to the whole thing Um, It is something you've chosen. It lives on your phone, which is the only device that you take everywhere you go. And it's intensely personal because you have, as the listener, chosen that content. If you tune into radio, you don't know what you're going to get. Sometimes you'll stay because it's something you're interested in or mildly interested in. Sometimes you'll go because you don't give a shit about it.
0: And so I know you learned a tough lesson about how difficult it is to produce a radio show for television. (laughs) Because you you guys launched to Comedy Central at some point, I think. No, why, why didn't that work? Well, it, it didn't not work. It was an experiment, and from the beginning, it was
1: meant to be an experiment. It was ah like that. This is the, this is where the startup philosophy or the startup mindset comes in. You know, we we thought let's go big, and let's do this. Let's give people the opportunity to watch this on TV. Most people don't know how to stream on the internet. Really, in South Africa, it's still it's catching on. So let's give them options. Let's give them streaming on television i mean uh, viewing on television streaming on the internet we chat uh, a channel on dstv let's go big let's cover all the bases which was the plan so that we could make a huge splash and it did i mean th- there's well it got our attention to be sure and there's so much brand awareness even now two years later everybody knows what cliff central
0: is even if they haven't listened and so what which platform given the ones you've mentioned uh, like we, where, where, what's the biggest one for you? Is it WeChat is it online? What, what's happening? It's
1: always it was always meant to be online, and that's why we launched the app a bit later. I mean, WeChat was was a, a very good deal we did right in the beginning. It worked out for them, brought them a lot of users, brought us a lot of listeners, and it gave us an alternative if our one stream went down. We were always working on WeChat. If WeChat went down, we were working on online. So we always had a backup, a redundancy, so our, our listeners would n- never be left in the dark. But the Comedy Central thing was an experiment in doing television, which has rules and which has commercial breaks and which has BCCSA and ICASA rules, and unradio, which doesn't. And we only did it for a month, and I couldn't do it anymore. I said to them, "This is—we've got to stop." Plus, it was costing Comedy Central half a million rand uh, just to send the signal to and from London and back, which is where their satellite. I mean, I don't know how these things work. It's ridiculous to me um so we were we were doing it on a on the basis that nobody was really earning money out of it it
0: was an experiment and so this unradio thing this is you trying to coin a term the way um apple's p- uh, coined podcast
1: well yeah i it, it, i think it it has become a term i see people copying it everywhere i see i see all the traditional broadcasters suddenly getting into podcasting um i wonder where they got that idea <laughs> And I, I, you know, the funny thing is, like, if you're a, if you cut out a piece of a radio show and you put it online, it's not radio anymore; it's a podcast. And we're
0: we're already the biggest podcaster in Africa. Right. So, I mean, where'd you get the where'd you get the money to do this? Who who backed this idea? Is this all you? Like, wh- did you? There's no investor.
1: There's no um, angel. There's no secret. There's no treasure trove. It's Rena and I. We have paid for everything. We have not paid ourselves. Um, and and we've made sure that we could afford the things that we have, and if we couldn't afford something, we just didn't
0: do it. So, what are the most important growth metrics you guys are tracking? I know you you said you guys are putting out was that so a hundred thousand, hundred? You've got like a hundred thousand downloads. Is that a week, a month? What is it? A week. One week. One week. And so, uh, are you guys cash positive? Are you profitable?
1: We are. Um, only recently, um, we've managed to to, as I said, contain costs, but we've also we're watching very carefully the audience numbers we're watching the sales numbers we're building relationships with 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 key clients and uh, we're doing a lot of kind of trade exchanges and pro bono stuff where it strategically will help us I mean, we've managed to get an unbelievable amount of advertising for this platform um, which really has got the word out and and it's growing nicely you know with data costs set to come down they're going to have to um and with the internet being the go-to place for anyone who watches a TV series. Anyone who listens to music. I don't know if anyone actually knows what the schedule of DSTV is or cares. Because if you miss Game of Thrones, you've probably illegally downloaded it anyway. So you don't DSTV doesn't enter the picture.
0: And you know, in theory, the big sell with online media is that advertisers can benefit from targeting their ad spend more accurately, uh, and they're able to track the effectiveness of, of campaigns, but why do you think, despite this, online ad sales are such a hard sell to corporate marketers?
1: Because of old white people in agencies, largely, uh, and because people are scared of the unknown. They would rather keep throwing money down the hole of traditional media, you know, paying hundreds of thousands of rands for television advertising instead of spending tens of thousands of rands online and getting a much more measurable return Um, it's just fear and it's people doing what they've always done hoping things won't change instead of realizing things are inevitably going to change and rather be ahead of the curve
0: than behind so let's talk about the talent on you know on cliff central i mean uh, am i right in saying your breakfast show is the flagship uh, at the at the network yeah,
1: it's responsible for most of the audience at this stage. I'm hoping to change that.
0: Yeah, because I was going to ask, um, uh, you know, how much time you spend encouraging the other p- people or the other shows on your platform not to try and be carbon copies of you and your, and your show and your vibe?
1: I don't think there's any show that's trying to be like me.
0: That's the that's the beauty
1: of this. We've got a lot of amateurs on, on air. Uh, and By amateurs, I don't mean an insult. I mean to say that these are not people who've got 20 years of broadcasting behind them like I do. And that's why they're so good, because the, the authenticity is evident from the beginning. They, they don't know how to do radio. No one sat with them and said, now you've got to do the countdown, and you've got to talk like this, and you've got to say it's 25 past 5, and mention what this is the best station in Cape Town. As If anyone gives a shit what the best station in Cape Town is, just be you. Sit there, talk as if you're talking to a friend of yours, because that's how the podcast
0: listener responds. So what's your playbook in terms of quality control? Are you brutal about cutting shows if they suck or people don't get better um, or don't make certain numbers? Uh, How how do you go about making those kind of decisions?
1: You know, the the point is that you have to, because I just said it was a relationship, you have to give a chance for that relationship to develop. But you can't wait forever. And if a show really isn't working, you have to can it. And we have had some fallout. It's been amazing. In two years, maybe about 15% of our shows haven't made it. Um, but we've we've chosen very carefully to put people on who, who fit a very particular niche, who are doing something no one else is doing. So if you're going to listen to Cliff Central, you're never going to get something that radio could
0: do. It's
1: going to be something either that radio can't do or that we do better than them. You're not going to find standard stuff here.
0: And so do you think that leaving mainstream radio to do your breakfast show on the internet um, might have eroded some of the... I don't want to call it the shock factor because I know you, didn't, you, you weren't in it for the shock necessarily, but do you think it made it harder for you to, be, to, to, to perpetuate the entertaining brand people bought into when, when they tuned into Gravescliff? Because, I mean, you're listening on the internet and people generally on the internet have seen like, or heard like ridiculously out there stuff. And, and, and maybe on mainstream radio, you, you were relatively you know, edgy, whereas on the internet, maybe it's harder to be maybe. Uh, I'm not concerned with that.
1: Um, I'm not trying to be shocking anymore, and I'm not trying to do outrageous things anymore. I'm just doing what I do. And if you like what I do, and
0: you want to hear something real, and you want to hear something
1: authentic, this is where you're going to get it.
0: And so I'm curious about how much time you dedicate to the various roles you are, you know, you, you the hats you wear as a broadcaster, being on radio, being on television, running a business. Talk me through the average day and give me a sense of how much time you, you spend doing all these various things.
1: Um, I wake up at four thirty in the morning. I do my show from six to nine weekdays. Um, I then go into client meetings ops meetings, strategy discussions. We meet with uh w- with with people who have ideas who want to pitch shows um clients all kinds of things um I usually get out of here at about two three in the afternoon and then i 'll go and do a little bit of exercise and i 'll go home and i 'll carry on working um it 's not exciting. It's very routine at the moment, but this is the slog that you need to, to get into. I've been fortunate this year. I've been able to go to South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, which is the, the, the number one show for you know tech startups and for anyone involved in interactive media and, and online media. I went to Silicon Valley on a trip just three or four weeks ago. We went to Google and Facebook, and we met with venture capitalists and and people in in digital media and people in all kinds of really interesting lines of work um these these are the the sort of unusual periods of my life at the moment and and just looking at where things are going i think that role may change quite a lot um, in the future in what way i think perhaps you know i'm i'm the ideas guy and i'm i'm the um i'm the guy who's i'm not the operations guy i don't i don't want to sit in meetings discussing you know which kind of coffee we're we're buying for the coffee machine Um, i want to talk about how we're going to change the world i want to meet with people who've got ideas about shows that will blow everyone away there's a show called the maid report sorry maid sessions maid sessions a young lady called mbali um, is interviewing domestic workers about their lives about their jobs about their wage about the things they care about about politics about uh, what's in the madam's underwear drawer, about everything that you could imagine that no one ever talks to domestic workers about. And she's essentially creating a network, a union, in effect, of domestic workers, because we mustn't underestimate that domestic workers don't have smartphones and that they can't download this podcast, which they are. And if they can grow that, just think of the potential. You're creating an online community where there wasn't one before. You're linking these women together together in ways that they've never been linked together before. And you're you're even bringing the madams, their employers, into the conversation as eavesdroppers so that they can find out that these real people have real interests and really exist as human beings, not just as someone who comes in to clean the house. We're going to change society with things like this, believe me. There's a show we've we've just signed on. Uh, It's going to be two guys from Zimbabwe originally who are hosting it. It's going to be a Zimbabwe show for the diaspora, you know, Zimbabweans all over the world who are, who are by and large tremendously successful people here in this country, uh, Zimbabweans punch way above their numbers in terms of the corporate positions that they hold, the kind of, of influence they have on business in this country, the the amount of money they send back home. This is just in South Africa, but all over the world, there are South Africans who I mean Zimbabweans who are doing tremendous things. They've never had a place to come together before. We are going to create that place. Now, that's powerful. I mean, that to me is far more um, fulfilling uh, as, as, a, as a guy who can create a place for those those people to do their thing is far more fulfilling than making money or gaining listeners or being famous or
0: being shocking or any of the things I've already done. I think it's fair to say at this point in the interview, you've, um, you've debunked a few of the preconceptions I had coming into this interview, which is a good thing. And of course, uh, after that comment about Zimbabweans, I'm feeling very warm and fuzzy inside. Um, thank you very much.
1: You should be ashamed about your preconceived ideas.
0: <laughs> I'm suitably ashamed, but also equally, equally warm, warmed by the sentiment you have about Zimbabweans. Yeah.
1: Well, you see, again, um, in a country where there, there are things that I don't like about my own people, xenophobia and, and racism and bigotry and all the things that even I have been accused of, which I refute and, and which I'll contest at any given time, um, I feel that we can make positive differences. And even if it's in small ways like this, these things will grow. One thing we know about the internet is once things go viral, once things explode, once things become scalable, there's no stopping it. No government, no individual, no horrible backward sentiment. Nothing can pull you back once that starts
0: to grow. And that's what um, that's
1: what's exciting to me.
0: And so it's downhill from here, sir. Um, uh, where do you see yourself in, in 10 years? Given all you've said, I suppose I have some idea Like Where should we expect to see you? Do you even think that far ahead? You will see me a
1: lot less in 10 years. I will be very quiet. I will be increasingly antisocial. I can promise you these things. Um, I hope to be extremely wealthy. And I hope to be clearing out of the way so that young people who are more talented and have better ideas than me can stand up and be counted. There is nothing worse than someone overstaying their welcome. Uh, whether it's on T V, whether it's on radio, whether it's online. how Stern's going? I don't want to be there for when I I don't want to be doing a show when I'm sixty years old. I really don't. Um I would prefer to be quietly funding great new ideas. I would prefer to be getting involved behind the scenes, mentoring people who have potential. I would like to 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 see um positive work in the f in, in the in the, the realms of free expression. Um, maybe i 'll start a little foundation in that in that arena there 's lots that I want to do, and
0: I intend to enjoy my life. Would you lecture you 'd make a great lecturer you, you add, and I know you know education as an industry is bound to be disrupted, um, but you 'd make an awesome lecture I think do you know what you just, you've just you 've
1: actually read me very well because one of the things i 've always wanted to do was teach history.
0: teaching history would make me so happy. I'm going to teach one day too, but not history. But that's that's interesting. And why history? Uh, what 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 appeals about that? It's the only subject you do at school that
1: tells you about people. And if you can learn the lessons of the past, you can only have a better future. If you don't understand where we come from, you're bound to make really stupid mistakes over and over again.
0: Wow! Oh. And so, if there's three people you could take to dinner, dead or alive, you know the drill. Who'd they be? Mm. It's easy. I've already thought of this. Uh, Alexander the Great.
1: Uh, Psycho. Absolutely. But, I mean, he conquered the world at 33. Um, it depends. I mean, you catch me on any given day, it'll change. Um, what is it about conquering the world and understanding how he did it that, that appeals to you? Just think about this. There's a guy who's 33 years old. He dies in Babylon. And he has conquered the known world. He's traveled from... Macedonia to Persia to India he has he's, he's won battles that were epic that that make great movies now this
0: the, the things this guy could tell you i would be amazed to meet this human being and ironically the reason i would not be as interested is because he all that and it wasn't enough i think he's to me the definition of losing at life in that respect. Really? Yeah, because I mean, how do you do all that and still fail to to discover what makes the most sense and then and then sort of kill yourself from drinking too much?
1: Well, he lived a full, I mean, don't tell me that those 33 years weren't interesting and they weren't full. And it doesn't oh. matter how long you go, it's just about, you know, how much you pack in.
0: That's an insight into your mindset as far as packing in value into your life as opposed to, So it's the what is it? It's the depth of years versus the width of years. Uh the depth of years, depth of living versus the length of living.
1: Absolutely, I, I I also think I'd have Jesus Christ if if he was a real person. Now you're talking. Because I would love, I would love. And he was a real person, Gareth. Okay, well if you say so.
0: Look at this guy.
1: This is how you. I haven't seen a grave. I haven't seen a body. I don't see. Which is the point, right? Well, I mean, then you've got it. You, your your work is still ahead of you. No, I don't have any work. <laughs> I'm he might be real. He might have existed. If he did, he would be a fascinating person to talk to.
0: Okay, so there's Jesus, there's um, Alexander the Great. Alexander. I wondered if we were going to get to, to this kind of uh, banter. But okay, so there's Ale- Alexander the Great, Jesus Christ, and? Hmm. No one living? No one, no one right now? You've met Howard Stern. You'd probably have said Howard Stern, I think, if you hadn't met him. No. You know, I've met, I've met a lot of living people who I really admire. I mean, Nelson
1: Mandela, I had the, the fortune of meeting. I don't think there's been a living person in my lifetime that I would have wanted to meet more than him. Um, and i was fortunate enough to to have met him a few times bill clinton i've met um i've met the queen of england uh, i haven't met the pope i'm not really that i don't think i i like this pope he's, he seems like a nice guy but i don't think it would be the most fascinating conversation ever i would like to sit with stephen hawking
0: uh yes he's a um
1: naturalist
0: um, i a rec- country physicist he's a
1: he's a a, a physicist in in a, and a uh, he's a a theoretical physicist um he's the guy in in the uh the wheelchair who talks like this but i would love to have a conversation with him i think he must be one of the most insightful uh, mindful thoughtful um clever people just super preternaturally intelligent people that uh, that uh, that live so if i had to choose a living person it would probably be him
0: Right, and if you had to live in one city for the rest of your life, what city would that be? <laughs> New York. Seriously, I thought, and you know what, I had prepped for you to say Joburg, you you traitor, uh, and, and then when you said, <laughs> <laughs> No, New York. I love New York. In fact, New York is the only place outside
1: of South Africa I would be able to live. Um, but you have to have lots of money to live in New York. If you, if you are not fabulously wealthy, it's a horrible place.
0: Okay, and then um, finally... Is there a question I haven't asked that you wish I had?
1: No, I'm not doing your work for you.
0: Oh, wow. Jeez. All right. (laughs) Throw down. Drop mic and everything, man. Listen, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. And um, I've learned a lot. If anything, the greatest takeaway is never make a preconception about uh, what you think people are going to be like. Because, I mean, uh, yeah, you've, you've pretty much blown every single preconception I had out the water. If
1: we weren't out of time, and I see we're already over an hour, um, then I would ask you what those preconceptions might have been. But uh, you can keep them to yourself, and I'll just pretend that you thought wonderful things
0: of me. This is no, this is the internet. So, fortunately for you, we can go. So, I'll ask the question, Andy. What, what preconceptions did you have? Well, they weren't necessarily negative, uh, Gareth. It's just um, I had quite a few questions around uh, your motivation around being. In people's face with with your opinions with your values, judgments as it were so i i was curious as as to how much of that is very savvy branding and how much of that is genuinely you and how much of that um you just managed to turn into this this massive business um,
1: it's not a massive business yet. God willing, it will be.
0: Well, relatively speaking, you know what I mean. I mean, as as far as as, as uh, individual brands that have managed to transcend, you know, the 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 workmanship or the the um, within broadcasting, the the craftsmanship of broadcasting.
1: L- let me ask you this: on your your point of being in your face and you know having your opinions and being out there about what you think, what is the purpose of living? Nina Simone said that her purpose of living was, after many years of trying to figure it out, she said uh, the purpose of life is to be free, to be really free. Now, the only freedom that you exercise every minute of your life, and the only freedom that you can keep exercising every minute of your life to prove that you're really free is the freedom of expression. You must be able to say what you think. You must be able to do what you say. That is the very definition of integrity. Forget about freedom. If you can't do those things, if you can't stand in a crowded room, and say, this is what I think, you're not free. And to not be free means you're a slave to somebody. And if I'm a slave to anyone, I have failed at life. To quote you on Alexander the Great earlier. To be enslaved, to feel that I can't say certain things because I have a master in that respect,
0: that's failing. I suppose the surprise for me is discovering that, you know, that comes from an authentic place because I think I know a lot of people in this industry who are very strategic about trying to get people's attention, but for the reason, perhaps for business reasons, you know what I mean? Because it's a, it's a good, it's a great business move. So uh, I appreciate what you're saying. I suppose, I was hopeful on some level that you wouldn't be the kind of guy. You wouldn't be one of those people who sort of woke up one morning and realized, "Hey, there's a gap for basically taking people off, and we can make a lot of money doing
1: this." First of all, I'm not strategic enough to think that way. I'm not clever enough to think that way. And second of all, I would hate to live that way because it means you're pretending the whole time. What a huge effort for nothing, when you can just be you. And the people who like you will like you, and the people who don't won't. So what? I don't care about being popular. I never have.
0: Well, it's, again, a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, We must do this again. Uh, You said your book's coming out later in the year. It will be in November. Uh, We're still
1: working on it, so I don't even have a title for you, but keep an eye. Definitely. Might even check in on
0: you and see what's changed. Thank you for listening to African Tech Conversations.